0: Welcome to Old Town New World. We're here in Old Town Rock Hill, South Carolina at Millstone Pizza. I'm Jason Broadwater. I'm Chris Trevay. And we're here to talk about the ever-changing world of Small Town USA. All right, so we got a special treat today. Um, we have a guest with us who um, has a lot of experience in working with communities, with sort of city of Rock Hill especially. Um, his name is Joe Lanford. Welcome, Joe. Thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Joe was the city manager of Rock Hill um, during some dates he'll have to give us, I can't remember. Um, and uh, Joe has also been involved in. I mean, still uh, to this day, it seems like every time I go to a board meeting, Joe's there involved in some way, um, affecting, creating a positive change here in, in Rock Hill. And um, so I'm going to ask him some questions about uh, Rock Hill and the history of Rock Hill. And we're, I'm hoping to get into a fascinating story about uh, the Renaissance in Florence, Italy, and parallels with that city in that time period with Rock Hill now. So just to kind of entice you guys um, with that. So, let me start, Joe, and ask you um, about being the city manager of Rock Hill. When when were you the city manager of Rock Hill?
1: Uh, Well, I was city manager from uh, 79 to 93. And I was acting manager sometime before that. Uh, So, in total, I spent about 28 years with the city of
0: Rock Hill. So how did you get to Rock Hill? Are you from here?
1: Uh, no. Uh, I'm from Spartanburg. I went away to school and uh, dated my wife who went to Winthrop here and came here thinking I'd be here about two years and I came as the planning director for the city.
0: Yeah.
1: Never left. So <laughs> this is my home.
0: Yeah, I hear. That's great. And you, uh, I guess you raised your children here.
1: Yes. So I have two boys. I raised both of them here. course they're gone now but uh, they love Rock Hill just as much as I do.
0: Great so um, were you in I mean your profession was uh, government staff and so moving up in that was uh, what you were planning the whole time or did you kind of accidentally get into government staff work or had that happen?
1: Well I always thought uh, I wanted to be an architect so I went to the University of Virginia architecture school and then I became infatuated with Thomas Jefferson. Thought I'd like to get in government. Well, he was a good-looking
0: yeah. guy, so yeah, I can understand <laughs> Uh
1: So I, I was afraid they were going. To, I was going to design all these beautiful buildings and have to sit in, in amongst blight. So I was naive enough to think I'd just be a city planner and change the whole environment. I found out they wouldn't let planners make any decisions, so I decided I'd be a city manager, and then I found out they wouldn't let city managers make any <laughs> decisions, and it was time to retire by the time I figured it all out. So. Nice, <laughs> nice. Well,
0: there's a couple big um, kind of, uh, you know, change, moments of change that you were uh, significantly involved in in Rock Hill, and um, one of them has to do with um, these statues that have become symbolic over the years. I know in my childhood, these statues were really, I grew up, I'm I'm what, 38 years old, and growing up here, these statues were just, they were either controversial or they were loved, but they were always symbolic of Rock Hill, something about Rock Hill. So, Tell us about these statues.
1: Well, uh, back during the 80s, we were developing a new vision for Rock Hill. We'd always been a mill community. We've never had any public art, and uh, thought, you know, we needed to raise our expectations some as far as culture
0: and the arts went. So those Coca-Cola signs weren't—Coca-Cola signs weren't public art. And they didn't count.
1: Well, some people thought they did, but uh, <laughs> I must admit. Uh, being a city manager in a city with no public art and proposing that we spend money on it made me real nervous, oh, made a lot imagine. of other people yeah. nervous. Uh, so, as part of this visioning process, uh, I thought, you know, I was just looking around for what art had meant to other cities in the okay. world. And I came across uh, the David, which Courses in Florence, Italy. And it uh, turned out that David was done in 1488, 12 years before the millennium. And we were 1988, 12 wow. years before the millennium. And Florence, Italy at that time was about 48,000 people. And we were about 48,000 people. And it was a city in decline. The wool guild was the big industry there. And we were a city in decline. We would had all these textile mills that had closed. Uh, so they did uh, a new charter f- for Florence, uh, a new vision, if you will. Uh, and they asked Michelangelo to do something that embodied the new spirit of Florence and to place it on the outskirts of Florence. Uh, at the gateway. So he characterized Rome as the Goliath uh, because they were afraid of Rome overrunning them just as we were afraid of Charlotte overrunning us. And Florence as the smaller but smarter, quicker more nimble city. And uh, so he did the statue of David and placed it on the outskirts of Rome and uh, or Florence, excuse me. So I thought to myself that we might get a little grandeur by association. If somehow I could uh, parlay that story into something for Rock Hill, and at that time we had a female mayor, Betty Joe, Ray, and So we began to tell everyone we were going to do a female David. Told them this story about Florence. Of course, they laughed at us because Florence went on to become the cultural capital of the world during that time. But, you know, we still got hope here. Uh, uh, So we employed uh, uh, an artist to sculpt it. and we wanted everything about the statue to mean something about Rock Hill because uh, it's our first piece of public art. Uh, so we knew we couldn't just leave that up to the artist to do whatever they thought. Uh, so we wrote out a set of instructions for us. and if you've seen the statue, for example, the wings, on Civitas, start out as uh, bolts of material, sort of symbolizing our beginning as a textile community, and they uh, turn into wings, which symbolizes the fact that that gave us wings to go on do bigger and better things. So the stance means something, the hairdress means something, the wings mean something. Everything about that statue is symbolic of Rock Hill and what we wanted Rock Hill to be and uh, so it's been a phenomenal success in that respect we we could not have purchased the marketing uh, that that gave us I mean it's it's
0: you guys are in I mean I say you guys the city of Rock Hill is recognized somewhere in great public art in a museum or something like that right? uh,
1: yeah, it's, that statue has been in every major art publication in the world, and the reason was it was a piece of art with a story behind it, and that, uh, that just sort of seemed to capture people's imagination. And uh, Epcot Center did a, a film about uh, heroic art they chose five pieces, uh, one was the statue of Iwo Jima, the other is Mount Rushmore, the other is, uh, I've forgotten what he's called, but the guy on top of the AT&T building with, holding the lightning bolts.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Yeah. And, uh, one other and Civitas which wow. Good uh, Bedfellows.
2: Yeah, yeah, good bedfellows. Yeah. And
1: so a lot of people when they went to Epcot saw that film for a long time.
2: And
0: that is awesome. this cool. yeah, is the biggest Disney I, Walt Disney fan in the world. Yeah, so. and I'm yeah.
2: obsessed with Epcot and, and also and your story just now I loved hearing. I have never lived anywhere else but here. So I grew up. Um, most of my life that was that was there. I mean I was you know the eighties was a decade when I grew up. And I've never heard that story, but they've always been a fascinating linchpin in my life, living here. And the only side of the story I got was i have working-class parents, so you can imagine what kind of story I heard about those statues. Um, didn't keep me from thinking they were beautiful, even as a kid, and being fascinated with them. Now, one thing can we talk about? They were nipples, right? Initially, when they built when they it was nipples on there initially and like, people got upset and they there took were, them off. There were three on each Three one. on each <laughs> side. Here's the upsetting thing, so you know, my family, I, like my family's from like western York County and I grew up over there like right next to Northwestern and it wasn't on this side of town all that much and I'd heard a conversation about the, the statues had nipples when I'm, I'm like seven or eight years old, you know. And uh, but by the time I saw the statues, what do you know, the nipples are gone. You were like, dang! And I was like, <laughs> I walked all the way from
0: <laughs> West right, Tell us the nipple story, Jim.
1: Well, there is some truth in that. Uh, first of all, the name is interesting. We had to quickly change the name because people began calling her Rock Hilda before we uh,
2: yeah, could come right. up with a name. Yeah. So.
1: We chose the name Civitas, which is the Latin word for civic spirit, uh, and of course we were trying to make it acceptable to everyone, and even though uh, the money for the artist was raised privately, uh, the fact that it was city art, everybody just thought it was, not everyone, but some people contended it was wasted money. Uh, and uh, we were on shaky ground telling the artists what to do to begin with. As you know, artists don't like to be told right. <laughs> what to do, uh, but Audrey Flack was just a wonderful person to work with and uh, so at first the uh, Civitas was uh, topless from yeah. the waist up and uh, some of the council members did not think that was appropriate uh, so, they
0: put so a myrtle beach t-shirt on and, said, uh, <laughs> and they, were like, and they success. were like sweet. yeah had the big short bite yeah right.
1: <laughs> well I had to go back to the artist and tell her she had to cover her up and uh, uh, she was not happy about that but well. uh, figured at some point the Pope must have gone into Michelangelo and told him to put a little more blue in that ceiling or something. Right, right, so yeah, right. I think he
0: told him to make his penis smaller because, uh, you know, well he's a muscular be... dude. But you know. Her, that disappointed ex- that disappointment she felt
2: extended all the way to a young boy who was <laughs> disappointed to see those statues with shirts on.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, he got a little worse even after she was draped. Some. People thought the nipples were too prominent, so I had to go back to her and get her to soften those down. I don't know what there is about nipples, but uh, I mean, everybody's got them.
2: Exactly, exactly. Even even animals got them. But the thing is, I think it's so funny because if that, if that was done today, I don't think it would be anything like that, you know? I mean, yeah, you're gonna have people that, some people, it does not matter what you do. You reinvent the wheel, they're still gonna complain and gripe but I think that the overall reception would have been totally different if it happened now. You know?
1: oh, I, I agree, and, uh, but that was the first, right, right, the new right, thing. Right. And we had a program to uh, have a major piece of heroic art every uh, two or three years. Uh, and we wanted to sort of specialize in heroic art because we wanted a collection, not just an accumulation of art. And so the next uh, one was the David, I mean, uh, Casey, Casey at the back, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, then I sort of ran out of energy and retired, uh, oh, man, and they God. never followed it up, but I wish they had. If we had uh, every two or three years gotten a major piece of art like that, we'd have Quite a collection
0: now, and it would have met. absolutely.
2: You know, that would
0: make this that, that in and of itself would make this place more interesting, more more vital, more um, you know, more reason to tell other people about their experience in this place. I mean, I don't know how many people I've told about the little mice statues that are in Greenville that you discover when you're walking down the street and you look over and there's a little mouse. I mean, those are tiny and probably didn't cost much money. And I have told so many people about that. Hey, how
2: fascinating is that? It's so interesting, you yeah. know? And it's like, it. I mean, like I said, I mean, I grew up in the 80s. So for me, you know, when you talk about Casey at the Bat at Cherry Park and the Civitas statues, I mean, these are major kind of mile markers in my memories of this town and growing up here that I will never forget. I have vivid, vivid memories of seeing Casey at the Bat for the first time. I was young enough that I probably heard the story, Casey at the Bat, or whatever my dad's, you know, uh, Cliff's Notes version of an already, like a poem, right? Right, yeah. Um, And I remember my dad telling me what it was about, but my dad got the poem and he told me, and I'm like standing at the statue reading it or watching it and hearing the story, and these are important sort of like, like I said, kind of linchpin moments in my memories, and that kind of stuff is so important. That's such a big deal of creating experience in a culture, you know?
0: It's experience. I mean, if you anonymize a town with big box retail and clear cut development. Yeah. And you don't have something that's unique, whether it's her- heroic art or something. Something that's mm. culturally engaging and unique, then it just the the town just disappears. It just right. like seeps into the ground and disappears. Yeah. It becomes an outlet mall. Yeah. You know, uh- so I-
2: yeah, you know I'm saying I, like I don't have any memories of a time or the uh, like the first time I went to Walmart. You know, I mean, but I remember that when I was with like a youth group that we were doing a scavenger hunt and one of them we had to take our pictures next to the Civitas statues and like you know it's those kinds of because that worked its way into our little uh, scavenger hunt game because it's this piece of, of Rock Hill, you know. And that, it's just, yeah, it has so much more value than you can sort of like be like, oh, it costs this much? What do we get back for it? No, nothing, so don't do it. You know, it just does not work that way, you
1: know? Well, when you think about it, we didn't have any, we had some landmarks or some symbols, mainly Tillman Tower at Winthrop, if people wanted to have a symbol of Rock Hill, that was the only one, and now, Usually, you see Civitas when, when people are tagging Rock Hill for some reason, or Casey at the bat,
0: or. We need, some to, re, we need to reinvigorate uh, Civitas as a symbol of Rock Hill. I yes. think it's time to where that could become relevant anew. What do you think about that?
1: I think it's good. I'd like to reinvigorate that whole idea of heroic art and getting some more pieces here. And I think we had a nice niche because we were trying to do heroic art, but every piece had to have a story behind it, and like Casey at the Bat, every person who had a child playing at Cherry Park always had their picture taken with Casey at the Bat, and you could see the Father telling the kid that yeah. even Mighty Casey struck I mean, I out every yeah. now and then. Yeah. I remember my
2: dad told me, I remember that was the first time I heard that concept of Casey Bat. we I remember standing there and my dad telling me the story, you know. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, so, so Cherry Park was built during your uh, tenure? Yes. Uh-huh. So, so, I mean, that was a big deal. That was a big deal for Rock Hill. I mean, my parents still go out there and walk mm-hmm. like twice a week. And they've been doing it since I was a child. You know, that, that was a huge amenity difference in, in the town. Ta- I bet Rocky didn't have anything like that before Cary Park.
1: No, and it, uh, it was the first of its kind, but it was more than just a park. We were trying to get into sports tourism because yeah. we did not have a lot of uh, diversification as far as our industry went. Uh, so... That, you know, made uh, Manchester Meadows and the tennis courts and the biking facilities yeah. all possible. Something well,
0: Let me chime in and say that starting with Cherry Park and the investment in the concept of sports tourism, I mean, that is one of the critical successes of this city. If you look at what's going on now and what's coming with the BMX, I mean, first of all, I just can't say enough how cool it is that we have a X Games approved BMX facility. I mean, that is the coolest thing that I've ever seen. And that we're going to have the international BMX championships here in 2017. And Rock Hill is about the coolest thing I've ever heard. And then to have the velodrome that you can do Olympic tryouts and training on right next door to the BMX facility. That's crazy. Thank you. So Who would have
1: thought a small city like Rock Hill could accomplish that? So
0: well, okay, so Joe, you have a track record, you had a track record as a city manager of doing bold things. One of the bold things that you did gets constantly criticized. Um, and what it was, was putting a roof on downtown Rock Hill. Um, and then with that whatever things got you know adjusted down here torn down or whatever to accommodate turning downtown Rocky hill into a mall So another incredibly bold move if I've learned anything about bold people and I, I kind of fancy myself as one is that you have big successes and you have big failures you know you get a lot of criticism for that being a big failure but I would love to hear your insight on why we put a roof on downtown Rock Hill. And um, what you think about it now, however many years later that the roof, what's 15, 20 years later this roof's come off, 20, 25 years, I don't even know, but t- so tell us about that story.
1: Well, you're right, I was the person who was uh, championing the roof over Main Street, and I was also the person who was championing taking it off. Uh, so I got a lot of flack about Weren't you the guy who talked (laughs) us into doing this to begin with?
2: You don't know what you want.
1: (laughs) But I think it was the right thing to do at the time, and it was the right thing to do to take it off. I mean, we put it on in a way that uh, uh, preserved the buildings downtown, Uh, it was not attached to the buildings. and at that time, everybody was moving out to the malls. And so to compete, to keep the buildings from being torn down, we had to, we couldn't beat them, we had to join them.
0: Do you think that if the roof would not have been put on, I know this is all kind of speculation, but you think if the roof would not have been put on, that there is a possibility that all these buildings would have been torn down?
1: Not all of them, but a lot of them would. It, it would've looked like somebody smiling with a bunch of missing teeth. Uh, But the mall was a success for many years. I mean, it. uh, as part of that, we took down a lot of the really bad buildings and created parking around. We put new street lights, new landscaping in. For many years, it was the best part of downtown Rock Hill. And then, you know, it became point where malls were not such a great idea and people weren't all flocking there. Downtowns were coming back. So then it made sense to emphasize the history of the place and take the mall roof
0: off. But, how come we didn't, if I may interject, how come we didn't... As a city, appreciate um, our history. You, you know, you look at town. I mean, I know obviously. You know, towns like Charleston have a uh, advantage of that. The history has always been appreciated, always been preserved, always been invested in. But I can't understand a time period that I was alive during. That I was uh, not just a baby, but I was like a live functioning person during. That people didn't really value kind of the historic component of the city. I mean, how does that happen? Well, I
1: think it was the times. I mean, it was not just Rock Hill; people all over the country didn't appreciate the history. If you look at the fifties and the sixties, even seventies, it was all about having something new and and bold. So it's. Um, you know, those things come and go, and uh, I think, like most things, you almost have to lose it before you appreciate it. Uh, But now, if you want to be in an urban environment and you want a place with some historical uh, memory to it, downtown Rock Hill is about you're only shot in Rock Hill. Everything else is new. But if everything is new, you're just like everyone else. I mean, we may not have the greatest history in the world, but it's the only history we got. It's our yeah. history. Uh, well, it
0: actually is. The more I've learned, you know, I, <clears throat> one time I wrote a, uh, this is you know, me, me and quintessential naive Jason, what I was teaching up in uh, North Carolina. My first year teaching. I decided that I was going to go to central office. This is in Marion, North Carolina. I uh, said McDowell County. I said I was going to go to the central office in of the county and suggest that they completely change the way they teach history, uh, English, and literature in the state of South in the state of North Carolina. You know, well, they were less than interested in uh, in my ideas, but I put together this whole. I worked on it forever, you know, but I put together this whole thing about that. You, you should learn history in a um, kind of expanding concentric sphere making connections back to yourself the whole time So you, you should start with learning about your neighborhood and your town and you should always be learning about your neighborhood and your town even when you're out to the edge of the sphere of learning about african history and culture you should be connecting it to your neighborhood and your town, and therefore it would broaden your perspective, help you make connections, and that's where true c- true learning comes from. So I had this, I thought it was a genius idea. I still think it's a genius idea, to be honest with you. But, you know, there was no interest in hearing that. So, so I, as a, as my personal experience, I knew nothing about Rock Hill when I left here, except I knew that Rock Hill was the lamest place on the face of the earth. Now, part of that is my juvenile, is everybody's juvenile experience. It's kind of a common juvenile, you know, where you come from is lame and elsewhere is better. But some of it was that Rock Hill really was lame, so, you know, credit to that. But, but but a lot of it was that I had no idea. Until I moved back here, I didn't know the history of Rock Hill. I didn't know the stories of Rock Hill. I didn't know the people that made this place exceptional. I didn't know that Rock Hill used to be bigger economy than Charlotte, that it used to be like the biggest economy around. I didn't know about Anderson Motors. I didn't know any of this stuff until I've intentionally dug into it as a 30-year-old, you know, 30-something-year-old. Now,
2: one thing about the question of, like, how in the 80s was the perspective so skewed that we allowed ourselves to try to do something updated and, and not be proud of our history, and, because you're saying you're, you're working right now in a time where that seems totally unreasonable, but the issue is you also live in a time where who do we look to and assume have the keys to the future the young people right the the people that are doing the hip new young stuff that makes sense now that it made makes sense, sense. Well, it made sense well the thing is in the 80s though no, it did I mean like well malls are the new thing is what I'm saying you oh, know like because and the truth is when did we as a culture start paying attention to the kids the 80s kind of in that kind of the birth of us actually paying attention to the kids and seeing what the young new hip people are doing well that wasn't really the that was sort of a product of the the 60s revolution, right? We eventually came around to like, well, if we wanna figure out the future, we have to listen to what the young people are saying. In the 80s, the young people were saying, we're going to the shopping malls. Yeah. And in a way, I mean, it completely does make sense that you would, in the 80s, like I said, it was the birth of that. It was the new time to like, you know what we should do? We should
0: listen to what young people want. Well, that's piggybacked on top of, you know, the automobile, the 50s version of the automobile that uh, created suburbia. It created white flight, you know. It created uh, just all kinds of cultural shifts. The interstates, you know. Um, I mean, it radically changed everything about this country. You know, to go out from the city and to clear cut an area and to build a little utopia of people that look like you and talk like you and drive the same cars as you um, was a whole different way of existing. You know, and so. It goes way back to that, you know? I mean, you go back, I think we're going back now to not only the way it was at the turn of the 1900s, but back to what was really the more normal way of, of existing since the beginning of civilization. The concept of the village being the center of the economy, the place where you come together and you have diversity and you have exchange and you have economy versus a compartmentalized, I mean, think about it, man. In the 50s, we started, and I guess maybe before, we started. You know, you got your uh, me- health care over here, you got your schools over here, you got your neighborhoods over here, you got your shopping over here, you got your- We compartmentalized our entire society, you know, based on the automobile.
2: Yeah. And
0: everything we developed was about how-, how efficiently can we move around the automobile, you know?
1: If you look at every successful community or business, uh, whatever, you have to constantly reinvent yourself. Uh, right but the really successful ones reinvent their selves and at the same time know who they are and remember who they are. It's, to me, it's sort of analogous to us as human beings. You know, we're the, we're not like animals. We have to complete ourselves. You know, a tiger is born, he's a tiger forever. Earthworm is an earthworm, a dog is a dog, but we're born, uh and we're sort of given that awesome responsibility of completing ourselves, of making ourselves better. And uh, I think that same analogy applies to, to community. We want to make it better than, leave it better than what we found it.
2: True. Now, and I'm also, I'm biased toward defending the roof over downtown because once again, I grew up in the 80s and my memories, I have really wonderful memories of that place. And I, I'm, I, I still, it's like, I, I have this, like totally remember going to see like this wrestling match there and I have all these awesome memories. I didn't see Main Street the way it is until I was 19, 20, 21 years old. Well,
0: you know, what's funny. I actually did not understand that this was a downtown with a roof on it. Like to me, if you would have asked me, here, yeah. Yeah, I, I could not even, like, I thought that there was a, this really weird mall on that side of town that I never go to I would have never, I never understood that it used to be a historic downtown and there was a roof, like, that didn't even compute with me. And then I would have said, even even when I was away at college, I would have said that Rock Hill doesn't have a downtown. If you asked me, I would say, there isn't a historic downtown in Rock Hill, there's not one. I would say, well, there's that weird part of town where there's the that crazy mall, but like, there's not, <coughs> there's not a downtown. And then when I came back here in 2003, um, and I moved to York, and then I was looking around for a building to buy. And I drove down here, and I thought, "What? There's a historic downtown in Rock Hill? Are you kidding me? Yeah, that's like, how where I did was, this like, come yeah. from?" I
2: didn't know that either. I had no idea. Yeah, I thought that the Weird Mall was awesome. But yeah, yeah I, I didn't know it was a downtown, I and when it when the it Weird sh-
0: mall was dark and creepy, I got to be honest, which is I I guess I did too.
2: I don't know. I had I would dream about that place for years afterwards. I mean, I still well, like kind of a fascinated filmmaker. That's I know. Like yeah. I still I'm fascinated by the idea of it. I love it. I love the idea of it. You know.
1: Well, it was uh, a pretty unique thing then, but I think you have to look at it like you look at everything else. I mean, you never put anything to bed. You always have to change it. I mean, you look at South Park. How many times have they redone South Park? They didn't build it back in the 80s and just leave it like it was and everything's rosy. You know, every decade they're redoing it, adding to it, changing it. And so we have to be that flexible too.
2: Right. Well, it's, a, it's, it's a thing that's made by people, which you, as you've established, people are always changing, people are always growing. The things that people make—if that thing is any good—that thing needs to always be changing, always growing, because people are always changing, always growing. You know, as a culture, it's that roof over downtown was a reflection of what the culture was doing at the time. Are shopping malls the best, most amazing idea human beings have ever had? Like, maybe not, but there was a thing at the time. They were everywhere. You know what I'm saying? So it, it, this is a reflection of that. You well, know what that I,
0: mean? I think that's a great point. I mean, you know, you got to keep moving, you got to keep changing, you got to keep evolving, and you got to experiment. Exactly. And, and if you do less than that, then you just become stagnant. And, and so, as much as it's easy to pick on with hindsight, like with the perspective that we have today, ignoring that our past is what got us here, and that's easy to ignore, it's easy to pick on that uh, the roof on downtown, you know. Because now we're in such a mode of revitalizing downtown, as the value of historic centers and all this stuff and um, such a kind of anti mall malls are you know lame and you know it's all this and why in the world will we turn our downtown into a mall but it ignores well, it at all back then no. but, right. and it, and and it just flat out ignores iterative process which <clears throat> we do that in in uh, application development iterative process but it's easy when we're just changing code and we're changing something digital on the screen you're talking about changing actual yeah, entire right. physical, like, you know, square miles of, of physical reality in an iterative process? Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's significant, you know.
2: Yeah, our misses are unseen, you right. know? Our Architectural misses are loud and go on for a long time, you
1: that's know. <laughs> I think one other thing people don't understand about the mall is that the property owners paid for that. We set up a special tax district. They paid for it. The city didn't pay for it. So it was the collective wisdom of all the property owners that we needed to do something and we need to do something radical.
0: Uh, I just like the idea of doing something radical. I mean, I'm all about bold uh, movements like that. I mean, so, so you're telling me that bold move, you structured a deal where the private sector had the dominant role in, in burdening the cost on that, and the Civitas, you structured a situation where the private sector paid for that too. Yet, in both cases, y- you receive criticism that you're pu- mismanaging public money or something. Yeah, people don't look at the details, they... Uh, <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, well, that's totally
2: changed but now. It's oh not. Yeah, th- oh, they totally yeah, totally. Look at them yeah. now. Yeah, right. Everybody's but reasonable I, now.
1: <laughs> I should correct that to some extent. The uh, it's always been a public-private partnership. Like for the mall, the property owners paid for the mall roof and interior of the mall, and the city improved the parking lots. For Civitas, the uh, businesses in uh, Tech Park wanted. A different entrance to help market the park so they paid for the artist fee and then we use their tax increment money to pay the foundry to cast the,
0: the statues so okay, so we're dealing with right now a tax increment finance issue in, in Rock Hill um, just briefly for our listening audience um, tax increment finance is the is basically the ability to um, if we can, that, that the taxes that will come off of developing in a certain area, like if we create a tip district, we can develop in that area and we can reinvest the tax monies into continued development in that area. So, like, we can use the tax money specifically to put in infrastructure. and So we're trying to do this here in uh, Knowledge Park, you know, between Winthrop and downtown and the textile Corridor and all this, that we can do things like uh... infrastructural improvements and invest in the streetcar and all these things that we're trying to do to make this place a better place and we can do it with tax incremental financing <clears throat> and basically all the entities get together and approve if they do but the county and the city and the school district and all this and say hey listen we won't take our tax cut out of this for a while so that y'all can reinvest investment that comes into that area back into developing out that area and it allows people uh, allows the city to basically have more money um, based on little successes, keep reinvesting them back into the development of that district. So, Joe, is that a fair uh, definition of kind of what a tax increment finance district is?
1: Uh, yes, I think I might elaborate a little bit. The first thing is the state law only allows you to set up tax increment districts in blighted areas, in areas where without something changing, the market's not going to invest in those areas. So how do you uh, change the status quo and start in the other direction? Uh, and so they allow you to set up these tax districts. And the second thing is none of the taxing entities are losing anything. They still get the same taxes they're getting right now. Oh,
0: okay. So they're, well, they're, they just don't get new uh, tax improvement for a while. It's the increment, you, you're
1: you allowed to b- sell bonds or borrow money to make improvements that would create private investment and the taxes on that new private investment goes to pay off the bonds first and then it goes back to the taxing. Okay,
0: entities. okay. so let's use a, a concrete example just to, so we can get our heads around this. So. Let's say, uh, theoretically speaking, let's say that the area in this between downtown and Winthrop was currently generating eighty-one thousand dollars of tax revenue for the school district of Rock Hill, just as a theoretical example. Um, so, if if we were to borrow money to invest in, if the city were to borrow money to invest in uh, putting in infrastructure. Um, you know water sewer roads all this to, to help spur invest private investment when when a new company comes in and builds something awesome and, and locates here you got an increase in taxes coming in because they're going to pay taxes but instead of increasing that eighty one thousand dollars that's going to school district it would actually go to pay back the borrowed money first and then after the borrowed money is paid back then things reset after a certain amount of time and then all of a sudden Instead of $81,000 of um, annual tax money coming in from this district, all of a sudden you got all this stuff that got developed in the meantime, and now it might be $2 million. I mean, who knows? Or whatever amount of annual uh, taxes going to the school district.
1: That's right, and that's why it doesn't make any sense for people not to approve it because they're not giving up tax money. They're not going to get that tax money anyway because people aren't going to invest out there. When I mean, you look at the at the bleachery site. Nobody's invested in that for years and years, and nobody is going to. So they aren't giving up anything.
0: So without the public investment to spur that private development, it'll never happen. And even while that TIF is happening, they're still getting their $81,000 the whole time.
1: And they're getting other fees too, you know? So it's not just taxes that these people uh, pay, you know, they're creating jobs and things that improve our community. So it's it's really short-sighted to think that I'm not going to do anything now to improve the long-term effect. What if you had a business like that? You say, I'm never going to invest anything to get better in the long-term you're never going to be anything but what you are now and probably
0: you're not going to be there right.
2: if you're lucky yeah you don't yeah.
0: go backwards <laughs> yeah Oh, you're either growing or shrinking in business that's for for darn sure yeah so I mean there's no way to s- maintain the status quo oh,
1: yeah. <clears throat> no I think it's just that when you ask people for something they think well I ought to get something for it if I'm gonna give up this but
0: they aren't giving up anything they don't have it well, wait, what about like a fruit basket or something you give them a fruit basket and they give them- <laughs> about <a> what? <laughs> what if we gave them a fruit basket?
2: Yeah, you know, I mean, I don't, you know, I do not Not to sound like a jerk or anything, but if you're the kind of person who just doesn't have much to say or contribute or think about, you're going to tend to the negative, and you're going to, it's just easier. Right. It's easier to sit around and complain than it is to look for the best, because if you're the kind of person who looks for the best, you're probably doing something else with your life. Right. That's kind of what it comes down to. No, I
0: know not.
1: Well, there's nothing worse than watching someone else do something you said couldn't be done.
2: Right, right. exactly, yeah.
1: A lot of people just don't believe that anything will ever happen out there. But if
0: it doesn't, they haven't lost anything. They still got huh? their 81,000 bucks. And that's just to use the school district in my theoretical. But, um, you know, you got the county, the city, they're all involved in the potential, you know, putting together this uh, tax increment financing deals. So, but anyway, I digress and get into specifics here because um, you know, we are in another position. Micah, how are we doing on time? We're good? So i say this as kind of a segue to um, bringing us to a close. We are in another point in history in the city of Rock Hill where we are faced with uh, doing something significantly bold. Um, Joe Lanford, our guest, has um, been privileged and uh, uh, an an instigator of many moments in history, several moments in history, where this city is faced with doing something bold. And um, here we are again. And, you know, we've got to come together as a a city. One thing we do well is, uh, public-private partnership, uh, exhibit leadership, but it's not easy. And so w- we are in a place with Knowledge Park and uh, Old Town that we can, we we will again radically change this place, and it will be for the betterment of, of everybody here, and so we need to learn from folks like Joe, who have been through it before. Um, and been praised and been criticized and been run over the rake you know? <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. So, Joe, I hope we can uh, have the uh, <clears throat> stick to in what we're doing now that you had uh, when you were city manager. And um, we appreciate you being on the podcast. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Absolutely. And um, Chris, any last words?
2: No, that's all. Other than, yeah, I, I thank you for the deviations from the expected that happened in Rock Hill when I was a
0: kid because those are the things that stand out in my mind. Yeah. Well, amen. Well said. So I will say uh, you can see us next week on uh, Old Town New World.